0: First. Yeah. The uh, reading for today is 1 Thessalonians 5:12 through 28. We appeal to you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who labor among you and have the uh, charge of you in the Lord and admonish you. Esteem them very highly in love because of their work and be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, beloved, to admonish all the idlers, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all of them, see that none of you repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to all. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise the words of prophets, but test everything, hold fast to what is good abstain from every form of evil. May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do this. Beloved, pray for us. Greet all the brothers and sisters with a holy kiss. I solemnly command you by the Lord that this letter be read to all of them. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So last week we talked a bunch about the idea of time and about the idea that if we're going to be children of the light, that uh, we need to see time differently than uh, the children of the darkness do. And then, as you recall, uh, Paul was kind of making a point about how we live in the context of two different kinds of time. So chronos is the random ticking away of time as measured by the clock and Kairos is the kind of unfolding of God's plan, and, you know, Paul was saying this thing that is, you know, kind of hard for us to deal with in some ways, that we live on these two timelines, and these two timelines structure our relationship to God, to one another, and to the world. So, you know, like, chronologically, we're all going to die, the world's going to come to an end one way or another, and Jesus will return. Those things, you know, can be mapped on a linear timescale. Those are realities that we have to deal with and that we can't escape. But kairotically, we know that God is moving in the world, will bring the kingdom about, and that we live in this season that's kind of perched between the miracles of Easter and uh, Christmas and Jesus' return. So we've got these two timelines that we have to live on, these two timelines that we have to live in response to. And if you recall, the big thing for Paul last week is, Instead of worrying, like so many do, about resolving the exact day or hour or reading the signs or figuring out the patterns, Paul says the real option for all of us is figuring out how to live. Like, that's the, that's the big question. We have these two ways of engaging time, of thinking about not just time, but the history, the light or the dark. And, you know, as you recall, there are these kind of two options within the dark side. You can either uh, decide that your goal is to control the business out of reality and try and stabilize everything and proclaim peace and security and funnily, funnily enough, get neither. Or you can kind of, just like the Dionysians, drink your way your sorrows and kind of wait for the clock to run out. That's how the dark works. The dark works by saying we either impose on the world our own order and make it work in our image or we ignore the kinds of things that we have to struggle with. In the world. And Paul's inviting Christians to do something different. So if you're a child of the day uh, living in the light, the real question is how do we avoid being like the Romans or being like the Dionysians or whatever? And how do we understand how to live like we're truly in the light? Now, if you're a person who grew up as a kind of classic old school American evangelical type, which I know a lot of us did. If that's your history, the answer to this question was almost always uh, the way that you figure out how to be a child of the light is what? You avoid sin, and you make sure you have the right doctrine, and you make sure you're listening to the proper amount of, you know, Caleb or, you know, I don't know, whoever you're supposed to listen to. And, you know, like the basic idea that most of us grew up with is that the whole point of, of, of Christian practice is to get your thoughts and your actions right. Now, th- that's true. But one of the things Paul's suggesting here is that's also totally incomplete. It's important that you get your own thoughts and actions right. But what Paul's talking about is not us getting our own thoughts and actions right, but rather he's talking about how we live together. So one of the things that's difficult about being a child of the light, one of the challenges is that uh, we need to figure out how to live alongside other children of the light in a way that we understand our primary point of, of value, of, of our primary point of not only community, but uh, where we find love, where we're comfortable, all those things with each other. That's the kind of radical thing Paul's saying, I think, is that in the end, the reason why he wants to talk about you know the, uh, the apocalypse and the uh, authority of Christ and, and, and when things will end, he's using all this as this elaborate but a really important way of saying when we're faced with the truly big, Existential questions that we have to sort out like when is the world gonna end or you know, what what is the meaning of my life? The way the Christian answers that is not to go to Their own narrative or account but is rather to go to a community and say the meaning of who I am And what I do what it means to be a child of the light is to live Alongside other children of the light and I think oftentimes we don't realize how much we are socialized in terms of our, uh, our our spiritual thinking, to understand the goal of uh, our own uh, practices, to make ourselves perfect, get our thoughts and actions right, so that we can live in a way that's aligned with other people, but not necessarily in a way that is fully and completely with other people. So that, that's what Paul's saying here: is that the conclusion to Thessalonians, the kind of uh, you know the the business end of this letter, is to answer all these questions. What we have to do is think about how we live truly and fully together now he in closing here he's got these two concerns and they're like totally different from i think the normal concerns we have about community like the the classic especially in my tradition evangelical story about community always goes something like this well like all these people are imperfect and they're really hard to love but like we all get together and jesus helps us do it which is not wrong but i don't think that it's the primary risk like for example. If I'm going to reflect on my experience at resurrection, the first thing that I comes to mind is not, man, it's tough to be around these people. I'm gonna to have to drag myself out of bed and get to church and see if I can't tolerate Trey for another couple hours. Right? I mean, the, the experience of community is not always this experience where it's difficult for us to be there. I think the real challenge of community and the first problem that Paul is looking about is that how is it that we understand ourselves to be meaningfully a community of practice where it's not just that we're doing the same things as other people, but that we understand and we think about the object of our practices is not just us, but weirdly enough, we want to build a home for each other. That's one of the, that's one of the interesting things that interesting threads that I'm going to pick through in this, in, in, in the sermon today is that one of the things Paul's talking about here is, is home building. He's talking about figuring out how it is that we come to understand one another as our place of orientation, our place of comfort, our, our place of value. And the problem that Paul's imagining here, and you know, too bad he didn't have the example we do, but all of us all of us have gone out to a restaurant before, and like, you know, we got a little secret pleasure out of judging the family that was sitting a couple tables over where everyone was on a screen. And like everybody's sitting there and they're kind of reading through their stuff. No one's talking anymore. Maybe if they're talking they're like texting one another. So they're all in the same place. They're all doing the same thing. But is that meaningfully a family dinner? Well, it's hard. It's hard to say because, you know, it it, it seems to me at least that part of it is that it doesn't seem like a family dinner in some senses because it's not enough that they occupy the same space and that they're doing the same thing. It's not enough that, you know, they understand themselves to be participants in this activity called family dinner. It's that Part of what you need to do to really have family dinner is treat it like family dinner. So you tell the kids, hey, you know, put down the phones. We're going to sit here. We're going to talk. And this is a a ritual that we're going to do as consistently as we can to show how important this time together is. And one of the things that makes it different from the people at the restaurants is not the presence or non-presence of the screen. It's that the purpose of the practice is different because it's intentionally oriented towards the other folks at that table. That's what Paul's trying to figure out is... When we think about Christian community, how do we make it so that we understand ourselves and think about as ourselves as a body first, instead of as a bunch of individuals who then kind of try and bring a body together? That's the, that's the first problem, and the first risk is you know, that if we don't figure out this way of how we act and think and move and understand ourselves to be one body, the, the real risk is that we don't have community, we just have uniformity. Right? We, we, we may not have a, a, a meaningful experience where we are acting together and being together and thinking together and moving together in any way that is really dependent on the presence of other people. We don't want just uniformity. We want community. We want a context where we are building a home for and a place for one another. That's the first big risk I think Paul's worried about here. And the second risk, uh, it's, uh, look, uh, Paul uh, doesn't see even Christian community about, uh, as a, all about kind of rainbows and unicorns. Paul is totally and intensely attuned to the idea that when you organize a community, there's this real problem of exclusion, that when we uh, say that this is our community and these are our people, it isn't a very significant step to kind of devaluing the folks who are not included in that group. Um, when we say we want a community and we say that our community is the community of light, the real difficulty there, if we're going to be totally honest about it, is that it's not like that idea that ours is a community of light and another community is a community of darkness. It doesn't have the best historical track record. It's not an idea which has really produced kind of peace or, or justice in the world. And Paul gets it. it but the thing is like I don't want I don't want to say, therefore we shouldn't try and have a community of light. But the flip side is Paul wants us to attend very closely to the idea that when we say this is our community and it's defined by purity and there are other people outside it who don't fully get it, there's always, the, there's always this risk that what is, I don't know, to talk about it in old terms, what is holy for us potentially becomes sacred for us and potentially becomes a means of, I don't know, uh, being up or uh, excluding or hurting or harming folks who are not members of it and, and who do not think like us. You don't have to look very far in c- contemporary America to find all kinds of pockets of places where people say, these are the people I identify with. These are the people that I don't identify with. And. Because I am closer with the people that I identify with, you can authorize some really nasty things to people who aren't included in the in group it's like the you know the, the 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 most classic presentation of what's difficult called about life together these days is that when we have community, we often have it in ways which are community against someone else as opposed to community for some purpose. Those are the two things that Paul wants to deal with in closing out Thessalonians this problem of how do we be a community together and how do we think about the risks of it, and how do we solve those problems? And what's really interesting, especially from last week, he he uh, ends the verse from last week that we looked at, verse eleven, uh, and, and this is this kind of therefore statement in concluding the uh, the letter. He says, therefore, comfort and edify one another as you have been doing. Now, what's really interesting about this prescription for there's all these suggestions is that this prescription comfort and edify one another, the word for edify is a fascinating Greek word, so it's oikodome. Now, you may not know it, but you use the Greek term for oikos uh, all the time, right? And we've talked about this before. It's the root word for economy. So the idea of economy used to be like, what, is, what are the you know, affairs of the household? So when, when, when Paul is calling for edification, uh, oikodome, what he's saying is that our goal in the context of the church ought to be able to make a home for one another. That part of the practice of the Christian life is mutual home building—not just a, a physical home, but uh, is a community where we, in very real ways, serve as the home to one another. And if you think about all the ways that home matters, you know, like uh, home is great because there's a, a the, there's nothing that's better than slipping into the sheets in, in, in your own bed after you've been on the road for a while. But it's not just about comfort, right? It's it's about familiarity. Like there's one, the awesome thing about home is that You know, at least in mine, when you walk in, you're going to have a sea of children and dogs screaming at you. But there's something kind of nice about that. But home is also like all these other little teeny things. Like, you know, I I know, well, I typically know where I can at least look to find something when I'm home. Whereas if I'm on the road or something or, you know, in, in my office even, sometimes it's difficult to know exactly where the right thing is. Like home is this idea that's about us organizing our sense of who we are in a way that both allows us comfort and in a way that also creates familiarity, but in a way that creates a kind of intimacy. And one of the weird things about the modern world, at least in my mind, is that we have taken that feeling of home and we apply it in a very narrow context only to the feeling of family and what happens inside your private home. And And then outside we have strangers, basically. But what the Greeks were saying, what Paul was saying, when he talked about oikodome, is he says we should have some of those same kinds of shared intimacy and stability and comfort with people in a broader setting than just our private home. So he's understanding the church to be this place where you are able to orient yourself, understand yourself, situate yourself. And that the goal of a good Christian and the reason why a good Christian does what a good Christian does is not about their own purity, it's that our job within this context is to build homes for one another. So right off the bat, Christian community is different than other forms of community because our goal is to serve as a home to one another. One way of thinking about it is that home church shouldn't just mean this is the place where I go every weekend, it means something more radical. It means that what happens in here deals with a very real spiritual uh, and emotional and physical necessity. And the same feeling that we get when we get home and the pets or the kids or, you know, our spouse greets us, that same feeling of slipping into the sheets in your own bed after a long time on the road, that spiritually uh, community should be the equivalent of that. And, you know, I don't, I don't think we often think about it that way. We say, I have ideas and I have an individual personal and spiritual life, and I've picked out a church that kind of matches generally with those things, but the idea that there's something more to church than alignment is a a new thing for us, and that that Paul is challenging us to think about. So the question is, how do we make it happen? So Paul says, verse 12, We appeal to you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who labor among you, and have charge of you in the Lord and admonish you, esteem them highly, uh, very highly, and love because of their work. Okay, so... Uh, there's some specific history here, but it's important for us. So, as we've discussed, you know, like a bajillion times before, the ancient Middle East was an honor culture. And uh, in an honor culture, uh, you know, the ability for you to get power, to get money, all those things was dependent on your social status, how people perceived your social status. And as we've also talked about before, honor was typically something that didn't adhere in the person as much as it inhered in the home, right? So, you were from a good home is the way we translate that into modern talk. But what we mean is a family and its reputation and all those things were good. So the Christians in Thessalonica, like we talked about a week ago and two weeks ago, had a very specific problem, which is as a result of them being members of the Christian church, they were from the wrong home. Right. They were as a result of them being members of the church. They couldn't participate in the veneration and worship of the emperor. They couldn't participate in the in the festivals to honor Dionysus and like what's kind of beautiful and interesting about what Paul's saying here is he's saying, I get that your position as a Christian has immediately put you in a place of dishonor. And so the answer to that for him is that we have to honor one another in community, that we shouldn't worry about or obsess about the place of dishonor that it puts us in. But instead he says, we have to honor one another. And he says, especially those that labor for the community. And if you had the pleasure of looking at pastors interpreting this verse about what it means to honor people who labor for the community, let me tell you, they are working that. But in this instance, at Res Church, basically everyone is in some way meaningfully working for the community. It's the beautiful thing about a congregationalist church and that what Paul is saying here is that we ought to have honor for one another. And the way he puts it is crazy. The Greek there is Hooper Esperiso Agape, which basically means like excessively, abundantly, extravagant love for one another. So, honoring in in that way that is fiercely and passionately and and strongly committed to making people feel, you know, that they are welcomed and that they are appreciated and that uh, their labor is not in vain but instead does something significant for the kingdom. We need to honor one another in that way. But you know, honor and love are not enough. Paul also says we need to be at peace towards one another. And I don't know, me and Res Church, we're fairly decent at being at peace towards one another. Maybe sometimes we have too much peace with one another. I don't know. But, you know, we need to be at peace with one another. But here's what the really interesting thing is where Paul's building out this uh, metaphor about home building. So he says not we don't just need peace, but he says in a real specific way, and what's coming up, that there's a specific practice that's like home building. And so look at 14 and 15. We urge you, beloved, to admonish the elders, encourage the faint-hearted, or idlers, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient of all of them. Now, the beautiful thing that Paul does here, let, let's break down the logic of all these things. So basically, when you read it in English, at least to me, it feels like Paul's saying, you know, your church has some ne'er-do-wells in it, and, you know, when you see the idlers and the faint-hearted and the weakos, just really, you know, hold them accountable. And, you know, in the English, it has this kind of moralizing tone to it, but in the Greek, it's it's something else. What he's saying is that, um, I don't know, to borrow on the home-building metaphor, like, the things that make up a solid home are good bricks and, I you don't know, sturdy beams or whatever. And, and Paul is talking here not about moral failings, but about three kinds of states of mind that we have all experienced. So when he says idlers, the Greek word there is disorderly or disordered. So it's not just people who are like lazy. It's uh, that there are some people and all of us at some point in time Experience this idea that we're not aligned with the order of either the church or of God or the community around us and, and, you know, we have resistance to it or we sometimes feel like it's an imposition or we sometimes feel like it's difficult. And anyway, what Paul's talking about there is folks who, for one reason or another, just are not aligned with the directives and purposes of the community overall. And he says, for those people, we need to admonish them. But the Greek word is not admonish, scold. The beautiful thing in here is that the Greek word is that it's new And it means put in mind for those who are not kind of in with or happy with order right now. The idea that there is a goal or a purpose to it. So the way we admonish someone is not by saying, hey, you know, you're really bucking against order. And in fact, the folks who've been in this church for a long time had the experience of being called disorderly at one point. But we were called disorderly for doing what we thought was arguing in the best interest of the church that we were in. This is not admonishes tell people that they're being wrong. This is tell people that their actions have a broader uh, impact on an implication for the whole and so put in their mind that the goal of everything that we do ought to be to advance the kingdom. That's that that's what Paul's saying here. And then faint-hearted same thing. So it's not just like you're it's not just that you're weak. The Greek term there is oligōsukos which means ambivalent or uncertain-minded. So he's saying when you encounter people who don't really know if they're convinced by the purposes of, beliefs of, doctrines of, practices of the church, what you're to do for them is you are to encourage or support them. The Greek there means kind of come alongside them, uh, shore them up, build up their foundation. And it's even the same way for weak. The word for weak here doesn't mean, hey, you're a wimp. The word for weak here means that there is a state of mind that makes it difficult for people to achieve anything great because they are unconvinced of their capacity to do so. And Paul says, for people like that, we have to uphold them. Now, while the nerdy attention to these specific details, that there's the specific diagnosis of people who don't like order, people who are ambivalent, and people who don't think that they can achieve the things that they want to, and that for each of them, Paul has a specific kind of encouragement, and that's home building. Okay, so the reason why, and the reason why this is crucial to me, is that think about the diagnosis Paul is making. He's saying there are some people who thirst for a bad kind of order. There are some people who are uncertain and double-minded, and as a result, they don't feel like they can make their world or themselves very much better These are all weaknesses that might happen in a Christian church, but given the stuff we talked about about the Romans and the Dionysians, who else is Paul talking about? He's talking about people that are not members of the community. He's saying that our encouragement and our support and our ministering to people who don't believe in an order, who have a commitment for a bad kind of order, that's essentially a call to minister to folks who are children of the dark who have taken the Roman option. And for those children who, you know, uh, are are, are in a situation where they feel uncertain or or that their belief is not justified or that even if they have a belief that they can't achieve the good thing that they want to achieve. Paul says we come to those people, those people who are likely taking the Dionysian option. They drink their time away because they're like, I can't make my life any better. I can't really fix things. The world is crappy and there's not a lot of options available to me. And Paul says that the target of Christian community is also to build a home for those people. That's the thing that's so beautiful about this metaphor of home building is that it's not just about the moral failings of the people in the church. You know, it's not just about clutching your pearls and telling people how angry you are about their transgressions of the of the norms of the church. It's Paul saying in a very real way our need is to build a home for people who have this commitment to a bad kind of order, like the Romans did, who are trying to control the world through very violent means because they're scared about what's gonna happen. And our commitment is to look at the people who are downtrodden and feel like nothing can get better, and to make a home for them. That's what's awesome about the Christian vision of community that Paul is laying out here. In part, it's about things that we experience in the church, but even larger part, it's about the very basis of the culture that Paul is arguing against. He says that we have to build a home for other people outside our own community where we can minister to their needs. And here's the thing that's amazing about it. If you have any doubt that that's what Paul is doing, like is he really addressing the things that he'd set up previously? As soon as he says that, In verse 15, what does he say? In case we didn't get the subtler version of this point, he hits us over the head with it. See that none of you repays evil for evil, but what? Always seek to do good to one another and to all. What Paul is arguing for is that a Christian vision of community here is not simply about taking care of the people in this room or the people who share a belief with us. He's saying that the point of a church is to build a home so that not only us, but so all people can benefit from and can come to know and can see the power and the transformative character of the gospel and be ministered to and be encouraged. Leave aside the totally radical revisions of social relations in the ancient Middle East that the Christian faith proclaimed. And there's, like, a lot of them. You know, like, I don't know, uh, the proposition that all people, including women and children and slaves and criminals, had a dignity that cannot be taken from them. Pretty transformative idea, even in our culture, much less in the ancient Middle East, to say this. We have an ideological commitment to it. Like, yeah, we think everybody has dignity. We may not act it out in practice. But when when the Christian community announces that, Everyone has a basic dignity by being made in the image of God. You cannot imagine how mind-boggling it would have been to this, like, super local, xenophobic, highly traditional honor culture. But the second thing that's mind-boggling about the Christian tradition, and it's, more, it's still, even still mind-boggling, is that, I don't know, you don't have to look very far in contemporary America for the idea that as soon as we venerate the values of a community, we have this tendency to almost always say that only that community matters. And one of the toughest things we see in how people interact with each other on the basis of group identity is that it's this weird thing where the more that you are proud of your identity, your location, where you come from, in the context of our culture, the more that you are worried about or fear or have difficulties with people who are different. In the context of the ancient Middle East-like, your only job was to protect your own and to forget about the rest. In the context of the ancient Middle East-like, If you did good, the good was only to your people or to your family. And in that context, and even in our context today, there was an argument that you should not do good to other people who are outside your group because there's a zero sum game at stake when you invest resources. And people who are not in your group, you're hurting your own group and its interests. And the bottom line is that not only in the ancient Middle East and the honor culture, but even in contemporary American culture, we have this idea that our primary obligation is to folks who we identify with first. And then our secondary obligation is to potentially be good to other people. And by the way, in instances where our secondary obligation potentially compromises our ability to fulfill that first obligation, well, let's just say we put ourselves first. Christianity is a radical subversion of that idea. Paul is saying here, it's so beautiful, he's saying that this is a new and real form of community that's envisioned by the kingdom, and it requires that you care for everyone. It requires that you not just do good to your community or even see it as a trade-off between doing good for another community. What Paul's saying is that the Christian is required to do good for their community and, and I'm going to repeat the conjunction because it's totally crucial, and to everyone else. That's an idea that would totally transform how we think about the relationship between the church and the community external to it. Because even folks who I know who are very committed to the idea of thinking about what real justice in the kingdom looks like in the context of Christianity. Do have this, I don't know, basically we've had this impatterned, indoctrinated habit that says when we talk about the distinction between the kingdom and that which is external to it, we kind of focus on the things in the kingdom and there at least is an afterthought that we have to be reminded about thinking about the stuff that's outside the kingdom and Paul says that true Christianity doesn't even entertain the possibility of that trade-off. What's revolutionary about the Christian understanding of the world is that we cannot see it as a forced choice. What's so important about the Christian claim to die to yourself is not, as we've seen so many people argue without realizing it, the moral or spiritual benefits to you. Your dying to yourself is not just an internal fire insurance policy. We're called to die to ourselves, not just for our salvation, but we're we're called to die to ourselves. So what? So that we are open to loving others. So, And that's why, like, when people talk about questions around privilege, like privilege relating to race, privilege relating to class, privilege relating to sexuality, all the different things people talk about around privilege, when Christian folks resist it, there's always a part of me that bristles because I may not agree with all the ideological presuppositions that other folks have, but I do believe that the core of the gospel is that whatever I think is important about me has to die so I can truly love other people. And I do think the gospel says that I'll have a tendency to reinforce my own understanding of the world. And I'll have a tendency to, look towards and to try and privilege or honor my own understanding of the world that the basic diagnosis that christianity has of the world is that we need to stop being so tied up in ourselves to die to ourselves and our own understanding of who we are so that christ can live and that we can point towards other people what's the problem or contradiction there christianity is the original universal and metaphysical critique of privilege i mean my gosh, the whole thing starts out with a God who did not equ- consider equality with Godhood something to be held on to. Like that's the starting move. And everything else is an iteration of that. So we die to ourselves so that we can live as one body. And we become one body so that we can become connected to more and more and more people. So that we can invite more and more people into that blessed community and to do it. Paul says there's three things you've got to avoid and three things you have to do. So you gotta, what, do you have to, what do you have to do? You have to rejoice regardless of the circumstances, which is a way of saying, I believe that God is present and that God is working out the good. You have to pray without ceasing, which means I'm not just praying when things are bad or when I have something that I want. But instead, I'm seeing myself as constantly in communion with God and with other people. And you have to be thankful because you have to understand your life to have been a gift. You did not have to be here and nor did the world. And the fundamental orientation that we have to have is that we are blessed by the fact of mere existence and that Christ calls us forward into the world to do christ's work i mean like you don't need a lot more explanation of that and then there are things like we avoid so don't stop the word of the spirit which means uh when you feel that the community is working together in ways that advance the kingdom even if you want to drag your heels on it don't don't ignore the truth so when you feel like something is brought to your attention that uh may upset your personal perspective on The world or on what ought to be done that uh, you shouldn't ignore that or put it away but you need to face it up and test everything according to the standard of Christ but here's the here's the funniest one and this is the thing I want to talk about a little bit in conclusion because if you grew up in a a traditional evangelical community this is uh, verse 22 okay what are the translations that people have of verse 22 abstain from every formal people Abstain from every form of evil. Anybody else got anything else? There's one other real common one. Avoid every kind of evil. Yeah, so the way this used to be translated, especially in the KJV, is, you know, like, translations are keeping up with it, but if we were kids and you opened up your Bible, this would have said, avoid the appearance of evil. (laughs) And how many times were people in a context where there was a debate about whether or not something was sinful and someone would say, well, avoid the appearance of evil. Now, think about the logic behind that. It condenses the basic problem that I opened up with around community in this beautifully elegant little nutshell. As a guy who spent some time at Liberty, I know how readings of verse 22 go. Don't do anything that anyone might think of as evil. It's a verse folks use all the time to defend the idea that what makes Christianity compelling is that we're so darn pure. So, like, don't go to a party where booze is present, is the appearance of evil. Don't hire or hang out with people who uh, are of ill repute or who buck moral norms, who who watch rated R movies. Even if you're not watching those things, that's the appearance of evil. Don't play cards, because if you do, you're engaging in the appearance of evil. Don't do anything that makes it look like you're playing uh, or hanging out with the wrong crowd, That, that you don't want people to see you as evil. It doesn't matter if what you're doing is really evil. The important thing is not to appear as evil. Now, hold on for a moment. Think about that. Advocates of this reading of verse 22 would have a few choice words for someone who say hung out with an embezzler or a lady of the night or an adulterer or someone suffering from a disease that stemmed from their immoral behavior or a lawbreaker. BT dubs, all the people that the gospels has Jesus hanging out with at some point, tax collectors, prostitutes, lepers. He himself was a lawbreaker. There's something wrong here. If our understanding of this verse is avoid the appearance of bad things because you know, the man himself, Jesus, would be the most massive violator of that basic principles. It reminds me of an uh, argument from a seminary prof I had who uh, recounted a story of uh, after finishing her uh, Ph.D. in biblical studies, she went to her teetotaling grandmother, and they were having this argument about the ethics of drinking. And she was like, look, Granny, you know that Jesus like made and gave out wine to people. And Granny stopped without even thinking about it and said, yes, and I think less of him because of it. <laughs> The word here for form is not appearance. The word here is eidos. Anabethel. Oh, never mind. Uh, it, it, it's like the, uh, Gre- the Greek idea of ideal or the thing that you aim at. Uh, so the, when the scripture uses eidos in other places that are not just appearance, like Luke uses it when he says that the Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove. Or uh, Luke uses it again when he says he takes on the form of white and glistening raiment at the... Transfiguration. And form here is not just about uh, the appearance of things. It's a way of saying that the content of our behavior matters, but the means in which we engage a behavior also matters. If you say form means don't associate uh, with bad people or things, that's not saying don't act like the bad people when you do things. What it's saying is that if we are to act in the avoiding the form of evil, I think what it means is that we don't have to uh, worry about exactly the bad associations that we might have by acting in a certain way. I think what this is asking you to do is to say, be aware of the fact that your own vision of righteousness can be ideally pretty pure and ideally pretty good, but it can distance you from others. It can distance you from your own sin such that you may be pursuing a vision of righteousness and purity, but you're doing it with the same form that the children of the dark do. So you're doing it in a way that distances you from others and from the sin and yourself. This is not about appearances. It's about practices and it's about motives. It's about saying that if we're to push for righteousness, it's not just the content of our behavior that it has to be righteous, but it's instead the way we engage in our life together also has to be righteous, not just in theory, but in practice. And the reason why Paul is saying it, at least the reason why I think he's saying it, is that we are called to love others so deeply and so radically that even if if we're saying the right thing or thinking the right thing, we can put ourselves in a situation that is intensely hurtful to other people around us. And guess what? That's exactly like the Roman option. It's exactly like the Roman option. What did the Romans want? To bring about peace and security. Anybody have a disagreement with that in the church? No, those are the goals of the kingdom of God too. The question is the method by which we achieve those things is different. So to avoid the form of evil means advance or argue for or get behind or advocate for the kingdom both in terms of your theory and in terms of your practices and habits that we are called to be reflective of the person of Jesus Christ, not just in what we say and not just in what we do, but in how we say it and in how we do it. Avoiding the form of evil, then, is not staying away from things that might make you look bad. Instead, it's that we ought to not, when we act in the name of the kingdom or of a community or of Christ, do it in a way that makes us seem like the very people that Paul was arguing against, controlling jerks who want to tell other folks what to do and aren't afraid to put a little coercion or violence on top of it. We are called to be a community that is for one another and for everyone else. And when we see that about the kingdom, we see why it is truly the most radical understanding of community that I think has ever been articulated. Amen. Or something. Questions, Todd?